On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. This time, Mike, we've come to a location near Jerusalem, close to Bethlehem, actually. Quite remarkable, really. From below, it looks like a sort of volcano-shaped mountain in the middle of this arid desert, sticking up above the landscape. When you come to the top and look down inside, a little bit like a, a scooped-out boiled egg, <laughs> there's this amazing discovery. Now, what is it and where are we? We're at a place called the Herodian, which was one of the great palace fortresses of King Herod the Great. I say one of them. Why? Well, he built 15 up and down the country, but 11 of them stretched all the way from Jerusalem back to Idumea. You see, Herod was not a Jew, which was why the Jews hated him so much. He was an Idumean. Idumea was the Old Testament nation of Edom. So related clearly to Abraham, and yet a nation that there were often hostilities and tensions with. So he was a Dumean. His wife was Nabataean. city of Petra was its headquarters, its capital. So he was hated. He knew that. And so he built this string of palace fortresses going south from Jerusalem all the way back to Idumea. And the idea was that if ever there was an uprising against him, he'd be able to hop from one to the other to the other. And where we are is one of that string of 11 palace fortresses that he built, an absolutely amazing one, as you say, perched right at the top of a hill, a hill that actually wasn't big enough for him when he started this project. So he had workers take another hill and move it on top of this one so it was higher. And he built this palace fortress. And we are now 2,460 feet above sea level here with this amazing view all around us. Mm. If we look due north, we see Jerusalem, which is about eight miles away. If we just look slightly northwest, we can see Bethlehem, two or three miles away. If we look due east, we can see the Dead Sea and beyond it, the hills on the other side of the River Jordan, modern day Jordan. So this is an amazing place to build. I mean, just look, David, as you look around, you can see far and wide. There is nothing to spoil the view from here. And of course, therefore, nothing to stop you seeing any enemies that might be coming against you. And this is Herod, who called himself the Great. Yeah, he was a very modest man. <laughs> and therefore, this was all on a grand scale. I mean, the ruins even that we can see around us of this palace, I mean, what, what uh, detail is still here all these thousands of years on? Yeah, it, it is amazing. And the reason so much is here was that besides making this his palace, he also planned to make it his mausoleum, to make it the place where he would be buried. And for many years, they couldn't discover the tomb. And it was only very recently that they actually managed to find it at last. But what he planned was that after his death, this palace would be covered up again. It would be turned back into a hill so no one else could enjoy it like he had. But of course, one of the things that's done in covering it up like that is that it's preserved so much of the structure and we're now able to see its shape and what was inside it and some of the pillars. A huge tower here on the northern corner, a round tower, 
as part of the fortress's towers on each of the other corners at points of the compass. And down below us, right at the bottom of the hill, uh, his lower palace, where there are some incredible uh, buildings down there. So he had a lower palace and there was a, a huge pool there and a bathhouse and gardens and lots of buildings and so on. Uh, I mean, up here... Um, there, there was again his palace, his bathhouse, fortifications, incredible fortifications, by the way. Um, he had this place built with a double wall. So there were two walls with a gap in between them of several feet, which was then filled with, solid, with earth to make it solid and obviously, therefore, to be able to resist any attack that came against him here. Where does Herod come into the story of Jesus? Well, we find him coming into the story of Jesus right at the beginning. Um, king Herod actually was appointed king by the Roman Senate in 40 BC, though it wasn't for another three years that he'd gained full control of this part of the Roman Empire. So he, he reigned as what we'd call today a client king. So he had power here, but actually... The real people who were still in charge were the Romans, of course. So he is the self-appointed king of Judea at this point. Of course, for Jews, that wasn't really accepted. Why? Because the only king they could have would be descendants of King David. And he absolutely wasn't that. We've said he was Idumean. He was a foreigner. And while his family had converted to Judaism in previous generations, the devout religious Jews actually didn't see that as real. They just thought it was a, a sort of politically convenient conversion. And so they never saw him as a Jew. So here he is ruling on behalf of Rome, quite despotic, incredibly fearful, worried that at any moment there's going to be a rebellion against him because he is a Dumaine, because he's not Jewish. And uh, as a result of that, I mean, he just became increasingly ruthless, increasingly paranoid. I mean, for example, he murdered his own wife, three sons, his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his uncle, let alone many others, and let alone some of those that we're going to read about in this story today, where Jesus comes into the picture. So he is this ruthless, paranoid, despotic ruler governing this nation at the time when the king of kings enters this world. So it kind of sounds like bad timing, but uh, anyway, just remind us of the story. <laughs> it does sound like bad timing, doesn't it? But you know what I've discovered and what the Bible teaches again and again? With God, there is never such a thing as bad timing. It may look bad timing, but, you know, God's the God who works all things together for good, not just the good things, but the bad stuff in life. And all of this was just part of God setting the scene for the coming of his son. So shall we read the story? Yeah. We're going to read today from uh, Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew tells us about some visitors to Jesus. We've looked at some visitors in a previous episode, the shepherds, but there were more visitors, of course, came, and that's where Herod will come into the story. So let's, let's read it. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, when they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now when Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Well, that raises a number of questions, bearing in mind here we are at the Herodian. I mean, for example, why would Herod be concerned about the birth of the king of the Jews when, you know, he was in control, wasn't he? Yeah, but come on, <laughs> any despot in power likes to make sure that there are no potential rivals. I mean, I'd said earlier, hadn't I, he killed some of his own family. Why? Because that was where the challenge was most likely to come from. So this is a paranoid, ruthless, despotic ruler. So the minute he hears from these magi, who were, the magi were a mixture of sort of astrologers come court advisors in the east, in that area of Mesopotamia, old Babylon. Uh, and um, they had been looking at their charts. I know it sounds odd because astrology is something the Bible tells us to steer clear of, but these aren't Christians. These are pagans, and, and God's even using their own pagan stuff to get them to come and do what he needs them to do. And so as he hears from them, our charts have shown us that 
the king of the Jews has been born. I mean, his instant response is, a potential rival, king of the Jews? Where, when, how? Let's get rid of this guy. So we see that ruthless despot at work here. You mentioned the Magi, and obviously from this vantage point, where you can see four miles across to what is now Jordan and the Dead Sea and so on. But, you know, they came from the east, apparently. Um, where did they come from? Well, we think they came from, they certainly came from Mesopotamia, that, that you know, Babylon, Syria, that area where uh, so much of the Old Testament story engages with uh, in the Old Testament timeline. Now, here's the interesting thing. How did these pagan magi know about the birth of a king in Judea that was going to be transformative for the world? Well, here's an interesting thing. Let me take you back to the Old Testament for a moment and to a guy called Daniel, who was a Jew taken into exile when Jerusalem was conquered and destroyed in 586 BC. Actually, he went a little earlier in one of the slightly earlier deportations just a few years before the main one at that time. And through faithful service, Daniel steadily worked his way up, serving a pagan king, finding favor with him, and using his God-given wisdom to help the king make wise and good decisions. And one of the things that happened there is that the king rewarded him by, and here I'm reading from Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48, then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men, of all its magi. Now it looks like Daniel had used that as an opportunity, not just to serve, but to subvert, to infiltrate, to start to share the truth from his scriptures. And we think probably what happened is that Daniel had talked to them about the coming Messiah that would come one day and be born here in Bethlehem. And these traditions have been noted and recorded and as the Magi in our story are looking at their books and their charts, it seems like they came across that. And then God uses all their hocus-pocus stuff, frankly, to bring it all together so that they come to honor the King of Kings here. I mean, if, if that doesn't show us that God isn't involved in human history, I don't know what does. Because the seeds of their visit was planted 500 years earlier in Babylon. Yes, it's worth remembering, isn't it, that where Jesus was born wasn't a coincidence? Absolutely not. Um, I mean, Bethlehem, just outside Jerusalem, you know, if, if you were sort of writing the script yourself, really, you'd want to say, you know, well, let, let's have him born in Jerusalem, right in the shadow of the temple. That would be great, wouldn't it? But no, he's born in Bethlehem. Why? Because that's what had been prophesied in the Old Testament. I quoted there a, a scripture, Herodas's sort of chief priests and rabbis, you know, where the Christ was to be born. And of course, as they go to the scriptures, they find that passage in Micah that I read. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler 
who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Shepherd often used as an image of the king of God's people. So here is Micah prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus comes along that Bethlehem, just a couple of miles, two or three miles away from where we're standing now, we can see it on the hill. It prophesied that Jesus was going to come from there. So I suppose it said where, but it didn't say when. Yeah, and that was the challenge, wasn't it? And of course, still today, Jews think the when has not happened. The interesting thing for me in this with the where and the when is, do you know, where was Herod when this incident happened? Well, you know, traditionally it's been seen as him being in Jerusalem because he calls the leading religious teachers of Jerusalem. But I share the view of those scholars who don't think that was the case. I think he was here. You see, this was one of his winter palaces. And so this would be a natural place. Jerusalem gets really quite chilly in the winter season. So I think he was here and he called them. It's not that far away. He called them here. And for me, that's fascinating because as we stand here looking out, here is Herod saying, where is this king going to be born? And the answer is, Two miles over there, mate, right under your nose. And I love that because that's so often how God works. He, he does things under the nose of his enemies and they can't even see it happening. And it was happening just right over there, two, three miles away on that hill that is Bethlehem. But he wasn't asking an innocent question. Oh, absolutely not. Um, he, he wasn't asking an innocent question and he wasn't asking a question that was, you know, please find out where he is because if, if God's messianic king is here, I need to worship him. Oh no, he was asking that question because he wanted to exterminate this king. This was a potential rival and Herod brooked no rivals. So his question, although no doubt put in nice tones of this is really interesting, you know, where, where, you know, where is this going to be? And calling for the Magi to say, well, you know, what happened? And well, you know, keep on. And when you found him, come and tell me. Uh, it was all smooth talk, but with evil intent underneath. He wanted one thing simply to know where this for him supposed king of the Jews was going to be born so that he could get rid of him. So the Magi are possibly here um, in kind of some kind of conversation with Herod and his officials, and uh, the story unfolds in a way that perhaps um, they weren't expecting. Were they here at the top of the palace or were they in the lower palace? No, it could well have been there because that's often where guests were gathered. Did he call them up here to have conversation with them? Uh, and so he tells them to go and find this rival. We've called this episode his rival. Now, it wasn't that Jesus saw Herod as a rival, of course. It was the other way round. And so he, he tells them to, to go and find this king. And as soon as they'd heard the king, it says, they went on their way and the star that they'd seen in the east went ahead of them. You know, what's going on here? Well, there have been all sorts of suggestions of what that star was, an alignment of particular planets, Halley's Comet passing by, who knows? But as pagan astrologers, whatever it was that they saw in the sky, 
They followed it. They knew that this was significant. And then it, it seemed to sort of stop over Bethlehem, just on the hill over there. We can see it. And they go there. And as they go to the place that the star seems to be stopping over, it says they enter the house. Hang on, I thought we were just in a manger uh, previously. Well, that's a little hint that this visit probably happens sometime after the visit of the shepherds. Do you remember we've said that there was no room for them, not in the inn, <laughs> but there was no room in the guest house. Everybody was here for the census. And so they end up probably in a, in a cave at the back of the house, behind the house where the animals are kept and, and make a, a little crib for Jesus out of a manger there. And here we're reading that they went to the house. So that suggests this happened some weeks later, that all the family's now gone, the census is over. But of course, Mary and Joseph want to stay a bit longer. She's just had the baby, you know, she needs to recover from that. So I'm afraid that rather destroys our Christmas nativity scenes. It does. Where, you know, the shepherds with the tea towels on their head uh, come on stage, followed promptly by the three kings with their gifts. It was almost certainly some weeks, if not some months later, when they turn up with these gifts, precious gifts, that symbolize their honoring and acknowledging of this newborn baby whom they believe to be a king. We're here at the Herodian during the day, but there's not a cloud in the sky. So when <laughs> that star was seen, you know, it would have been no doubt on a cloudless night uh, where it stood out amongst everything else. Oh, absolutely. In fact, David, I was standing on the balcony of our hotel in Jerusalem last night looking out and the sky was absolutely clear after a day like today. And there was one star in particular which was just shining more brightly than any other. So, you know, it, it's not like for us uh, in modern day life in busy cities where we get so much reflected light and we see so many stars or we don't, especially when we get clouds. But here, something like that would have been very easy to see indeed. You mentioned about the gifts that they bring and you've already knocked on the head some of our ideas about the Christmas nativity play. But what does it tell us in the Bible? Well, here's something else we are going to knock on the head. We don't even know that there were three wise men. We know that there were three gifts. And it's from that that people have assumed that there must have been three wise men, but there could have been less, there could have been more. But the three gifts that they bring, gold, gold was seen as a gift that was fitting for a king, incense or frankincense, was something that priests used in the temple to offer up sweet-smelling sacrifices. Myrrh was used often to embalm bodies for death. Isn't that interesting? So these aren't accidental gifts that these magi bring. These are gifts that speak prophetically of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. He was indeed the promised king. He was a king who was also a priest, for it would be through his own death on the cross that he would make access to God possible. He was the one who would come and give his life on that cross to die for us. So gold, incense, myrrh, 
beautiful prophetic pictures of the whole of life that lay out ahead of Jesus. Of course, a very different path to King Herod, for whom life was all gold, 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 and splendor and power and abuse of power to keep himself in power. That's not the way that his rival Jesus would walk at all. Particularly strikes me when you see what must have been the splendor all around Herod here in this palace fortress compared to the humble birth of Jesus. What a contrast. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we are sitting in well, fabulous ruins, but nonetheless ruins. But I think you've got to try and use your imagination to think of how these would have been with beautiful mosaic floors and, and, and beautiful baths and, and, and gardens and beautiful furniture in here. Herod gave himself the best of everything. So an utter transformation here to what was happening two or three miles away where the king was born in a simple home, in a simple cave maybe, um, and laid in a manger. The contrast of their attitude to kingship couldn't be different. But what Herod did, as you were reading the story earlier, meant that, you know, it was a close shave for baby Jesus. Well, it, it did look like that, didn't it? Um, because, you know, Herod, I said right at the beginning, he was paranoid and ruthless. So how's he going to make sure that he gets this baby? He, he doesn't know which baby it is. So there's only one way that he can make sure. When he discovers the magi have tricked him and not come back and said, well, actually, you know, down this street, third house on the left, you'll find him there. He thinks, okay, the only way to make sure then is to kill all the boys who are two years old and under. Not just in Bethlehem, but in the surrounding district. Why two years and under? Well, he's wanting to make sure. You know, maybe the baby had not just been born. Maybe he was born a year ago, two years ago. And so this ruthless, paranoid man is responsible for all these baby boys aged under two in this area being butchered. So paranoid is he to hold on to power. He is going to brook no rival. And so he destroys any and every possibility of that king coming to challenge him. I mean, come on, put yourself in that situation. You know, he quotes there a, a, a passage from scripture again of a voice is heard in Rama weeping and great moaning. But hey, this was real parents with real children that had been slaughtered by Herod's soldiers in their homes, hacked to death with swords. I mean, the sheer horror of that, the sheer pain of that, is very, very hard to imagine. Herod cared so little, God cared so much. Great contrast, David. And he cared so much, not just for the people of whom he was the king, Israel. Because the other thing is in the visit of these magi, who are they? They're Gentiles. And it's as if here again is another prophetic picture that this king has come to care and to die for not just God's people Israel but for all the nations after all going right back to the beginning of the story what had God promised Abraham that he was going to make him a father of many nations 
And the vision throughout the Old Testament was that Israel should have reached out to all the nations. Sadly, it started to keep it for itself, didn't it? It's God's ours. We're not sharing him with anybody else. But as Jesus is born just two or three miles from here, he comes showing love, showing care, showing he's here. Yes, not just for Israel, but these magi are welcomed as they bring their gifts. He is a king for the whole world, a king of love, of compassion, of truth, of justice, of kindness. It couldn't be different to the brutal despot who lived in this place. I checked the definition of rival and it says a competitor striving to attain the same thing. <laughs> the question in my mind is, as we reflect on Herod and what happened here, not far from where we are, is there a rival for our allegiance to Jesus? Oh, absolutely. And it's there every day. But of course, it takes a different shape for each one of us. Modern day rivals to Jesus can be our job, even our family, uh, our pursuit of money, our car, our whatever it might be, our phone in our pocket. You know, when it comes to just getting some time in the day to stop and talk to Jesus and read his word, this little device in your pocket buzzes and it can instantly be a rival. Now, none of those things that I listed there are bad things. Family, job, money, future, phone in your pocket. But of course, each of them has to be in their right place. And what King Herod wanted was Jesus right down there. He, he wanted actually rid of him. He wanted to be on top. But as Jesus the King comes into this world, his invitation to us is, will you receive me as King? Will you do what those magi did that day? Honour me, bow down before me. And say to me, Lord, I want you in first place as king. Or will we behave like Herod and say, me and mine? That's what matters. That's what comes first. And that's a challenge and a choice that faces each one of us every day. Right. I think we need to pray. Lord Jesus here in this place built by that paranoid ruthless despot Herod yet so close to where you came as a very different sort of king help us to be like those magi who each day bow our knee to you bring our lives and our gifts to you for you to use as you see fit May we not put self first, as Herod did, but may you have first place in every aspect of our life, even today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. 
Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30-minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB Player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises.